Evangelist Michael Behe tells a parable in several of his works that he does about a man who uh, lived out in the country of some country, um, way out away from everybody. And uh, he, a long time ago, he had a rat problem at the farm that he owned. And so he was looking around trying to figure out what can I do about this rat problem. Now, if you and I had this problem, we'd probably go to, to like Ace or we'd go to Walmart or something, go just, just go buy some traps. Well, he couldn't go do that, so he had to look and see what he had available to him. And so he was looking around his farm, looking in the barn, and he found a couple things. He said, you know what? I think I have all the pieces necessary to build my own rat trap, or to have my own rat trap. He said, I've got some old wood I can use for the platform. So he grabbed that, and he said, I've got uh, some, uh, th- this old you know, putty, Thing that I've got that I can just take, I just need the metal of it. This can be the hammer. And so he grabbed that. And then he said, you know what, I've got some tent stakes. This can be uh, the holding bar for that hammer. But I also need a spring. So he went inside, found an old clock, and he said, I, I'm just going to take the spring out of this old alarm clock. And he grabbed that, and he said, but I need something to, to kind of latch on. And, and I need something for, for that hammer to drop on, on, on some. So he grabbed some bottle caps. And he grabbed these and he threw these on. He said, I've got all the pieces to this, uh, to make this rat trap, or to have this rat trap uh, occur to me, or to, to show up to me. And so he said, okay, all I need to do is make sure that they're all working together. How do we do this? And he looked around and he said, you know what? Nature has provided every system that I need. So if I just put these things together, uh, just like everything else, it'll randomly just make itself into the trap that I need. So he grabbed it and he shook it up. And he said, this, this is what's going to make this trap. And he opened it up. He said, all I see is the pieces. He said, okay, well, let's try this again. Maybe we just didn't shake it hard enough. So he grabbed that box again, and he shook it a little harder. And he opened it up. And he said, man, that does not look like a rat trap to me. All I see are the pieces. Now, B, he tells this parable uh, to show how um, if we look around at the world, that we have so many complex um, mechanisms that it, re- it would require an intelligent designer to put all that together. That things can't just happen randomly because we see all the pieces or that we have all the necessary pieces. I tell you this because I think this is a really good illustration of some things that we get to experience now. When we look around our world, a lot of times we see pieces. And the chaos of the world looks like we're just shaking these pieces up, doesn't it? I mean, think about what we've seen on the news just this last week or two. We've seen school shootings. We've seen mental health crises. We've seen suicide rates that are skyrocketing. We've seen political battles that will look like they're never going to end. We've seen broken homes and broken families that look absolutely hopeless. And it looks like we've taken all these pieces thrown them in this box in our culture and just start shaking it up, hoping that we're going to see some kind of meaning from that or that something meaningful is going to be produced by all the pieces that are around us. Well, a long time ago, I believe Paul actually speaks into this very idea. And he says, I've, here's a bunch of pieces that I want to put together for you, and I want you to draw meaning from this. And he writes to a church in a place called Corinth. To, uh, to reveal these pieces. Now, if you've been in my Wednesday Bible study, you've heard uh, a lot of teaching about this idea uh, of, of, of the church in Corinth. Paul had just overwhelming frustrations with this church. 
even when he was there for the first time in Acts chapter 18 to be a part of the planting of the church, he runs into frustrations that are beyond anything that he has ever experienced up to this point on his missionary journeys. In fact, in Acts 18 verse 6, he tells them after encountering one more time religious uh, uh, authorities coming to him in, in opposition and telling him to shut down the operation. He tells him this. He said, you know what? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. That's the equivalent of today of saying, you know what? I have had it with you. I'm going to go to the world. I am done with the religious stuff. I am just done with this. And if you've seen and read what Paul had experienced in his missionary journeys up to this point, you would see he has a pretty high threshold of opposition. And he gets to his breaking point. So much so that we read that Jesus himself had to intervene in this moment. And he, and he comes to Paul in a vision, and we hear his words saying, Paul, keep speaking boldly. I am with you. And I am convinced that this is the only reason that Paul stays in ministry with this church. And we're told he actually stays in Corinth for another year and a half, which at this point is the longest he ever stayed in any town. Well, about five years later, he gets a report from a few people from this church about some frustrating things that are going on in the church. And when I say frustrating things, these aren't bickering type things. These are some really extreme frustrations. Beyond just the divisions of the church he deals with, uh, he encounters a guy that, uh, uh, he hears of, of a report that there's a guy at their church who is in an incestuous relationship, and the church is bragging about it. He learns of church leaders who are participating in relationships with prostitutes, and they're bragging about it. And he hears reports of different things going on in different marriages and how homes are being broken in the name of Jesus, and they're bragging about it. And just one frustration with this church after another, after another. Well, a little bit later on in this first letter that he writes to the Corinthians, uh, he is addressing some issues that they have in their worship service. He says, the chaos that you are living in your individual lives, it's impacting when you guys are getting together and worshiping. It is chaos. You have no order, you have no structure, and it's reflective of everything else that's going on. In fact, at the end of uh, chapter 14 in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we read these words from Paul. For God is not a God of confusion, but one of peace. All things should be done decently and in order. And then the very next thing he writes about, uh, commentator J.B. Phillips says, this is the most important chapter in all of Scripture. And that's what I want to focus on today as we draw order and we draw meaning out of the seemingly chaos that's around us. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just looking at the first 11 verses this morning, and this is what we read. Paul says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. No, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, as we hear Paul, he kind of unpacks a lot of pieces here, doesn't he? And that's what I want to look at this morning. That I, I want to walk through the pieces and as we put them together in an orderly way as what we heard Paul say right before this passage, I want us to find meaning and I want us to find some kind of sense in the midst of chaos. Paul does not merely explain what the resurrection of Jesus is here, but what it means. And so I want to do that. So as we do that, I want to look at some of the pieces of this evidence that he provides here. Um, and, and, and honestly, if we're looking at this really, really critically here, it really is just evidence, right? It's not necessarily proof unless we put them in an order in a way that we draw some meaning and it can provide proof for us. But I want to look at these individual pieces of, of evidence. Now, I know where I'm at this morning. I know that most of you, I don't have to convince of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. However, I think it would be good for us to approach this in a little bit different way. Let's pretend for a moment that, man, I'm kind of like J.B. Phillips. If this is true, this is probably the most important thing that we have ever heard. But also, let's pretend for a moment, I'm struggling even believing in the validity of the Scripture. And isn't that just an ancient document? Isn't that just kind of an old-fashioned thing? And isn't there errors in that? And so we need to ask ourselves, is the, real, is the resurrection a reality? Is that something that actually happened in history? Or is it just a fairy tale? Is it just a myth? Is it just something we like to say to make ourselves feel better? And so we're going to approach this a little bit differently. What is it that we can look at to, uh, to verify that this evidence is real without the scripture. Like the things that Paul mentions here, um, can, can we testify that this is real even if we don't have the New Testament? Well, the first piece of evidence we need to look at, Paul mentions that Jesus died by crucifixion, specifically died by Roman crucifixion. Well, we have all kinds of records that Jesus really did die uh, by way of crucifixion. In fact, it, it really isn't a controversy about Jesus um, being persecuted by, by crucifixion. What most people would say if they're arguing about this is that when they saw Jesus walking around after the crucifixion, it means that he really didn't die from the crucifixion. The skepticism is not did, did Jesus go to the cross because dead men don't rise up. The skepticism is, hey, he probably didn't really die, did he? Well, long, uh, several years ago, about 30 years ago, there was a medical doctor. His name is William Edwards. And another medical graphics operator, his name is Floyd Hosmer. Both of them worked at the Mayo Clinic up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They wrote an article called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association. And what they discovered when they were examining, uh, asking this very question, did Jesus actually die? Um, they applied those, uh, the modern medical knowledge that they had uh, to see if it was sufficient to the historical records that we have. And they gave it over to another guy named Dr. Wesley Gable, who then applied that knowledge to the biblical account. And here's what they discovered. They discovered that sometime between 9 p.m. on Thursday, April 6th, and 9 p.m. on Friday, April 7th, in the year A.D. 30, 
There was sufficient non-biblical evidence that Jesus encountered emotional distress to a point where he might have uh, encountered a, a, a condition called hemohydrosis, which might explain why uh, his sweat turned into blood. He also encountered, encountered an extreme abandonment of all his friends and family, that he was physically beaten, that he was scourged and flogged, and that he was stripped, which is custom when one is experiencing the criminal's death of the Roman crucifixion. They discovered that he suffered from the beginning stages of starvation and thirst and experienced extreme exhaustion. And after that is when he had to walk about two and a half miles while carrying the Roman, what's called the patabulum or the stipes, which are the elements of the cross. And sometimes that could weigh up to 300 pounds. And aside from the beatings, the Romans perfected the crucifixion utilizing any of nine variations of the cross to produce the slowest possible death with the maximum physical pain and suffering. In other words, they were really good at their job. They said there are three possible things that Jesus experienced while he was uh, at the end of his time on the cross. The first possible thing he experienced was hypovolemic shock, which, was the, which would have resulted from the trauma from his beatings and his emotional distress. Another possible thing he would have experienced was exhaustion asphyxia, which is the slow suffocation from being suspended on the cross, which is exactly what the Roman cross was intended to do. And another thing that he might have experienced was acute heart failure, which occurs when there's too much instant stress on the heart. So they concluded, and I quote, that the result was fatal cardiac arrhythmia. And accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with all modern medical knowledge. You see, this is problematic for those who believe that Jesus was taken down from the cross before he actually breathed his last breath. For those who say, yeah, we know he was on the cross. We, we know that there was a crucifixion, but he didn't really die. And it's problematic. It's problematic on a lot of accounts. First of all, I told you, the soldiers are really good at what they do. They didn't find random people who just to beat up on some guy. These guys have done it repeatedly. They were professionals, and they know what a dead person looks like. Second, we have to account for all of these attestations of people who see Jesus after the crucifixion. If he didn't really die and raise again... And he, just, and he just got beaten up pretty good, what we, have, what we would have heard is an account of a very brutally beaten and bloodied human being walking around. And thirdly, and I don't know why people don't bring this up uh, as often as they do, but the tomb would not have been that far away from Jerusalem. If we wanted to prove that Jesus never died, we could go to the tomb. We could go, uh, the religious leaders could have ran from Jerusalem and gone and checked that out in just one morning. And we have zero accounts of any of that ever happening. Jesus certainly had to have died from his experience on the cross. Another piece of evidence, though, that we would look at are those friends and followers um, who had experiences that they thought were actual appearance, appearances of Jesus. See, no one doubts that there were people who actually believed that they saw Jesus. But some have explained this away by saying, man, those guys, if you see a guy who is dead and who's, who's now alive, you're probably hallucinating. But there's a problem with a hallucination uh, skepticism. If I am experiencing a hallucination in this room right now, 
the way a hallucination works is none of you in here would experience the exact same hallucination that I did. And we have an account of over 500 people who say that they saw this uh, Jesus who was brutally beaten and hung on a cross who is now walking around alive. That does not happen with the hallucinations. So a third piece of evidence then is because of these sightings, we know that the disciples were transformed and their lives were changed. Now this alone by itself isn't really evidence, but when you put it in with everything else, it is because we all know people whose lives will be changed even over a lie. But consider the, the, the individual lives of the original disciples. We have uh, history, historical accounts and traditions about 10 of our 12 disciples and what happened to them after Jesus' resurrection. Peter was famously crucified upside down in Rome sometime in the mid-60s. Andrew was the first missionary to Russia, called the land of the man-eaters, and he was ultimately crucified in Greece. Thomas, our famous disciple who put his hands in Jesus' wounds, he did ministry in Syria and India, where he was pierced through by spears by at least four soldiers. Philip did ministry in North Africa, where he preached and he converted a Roman proconsul's wife. And because of that, he was arrested, beaten, and he was also crucified upside down. Matthew, our famous tax collector and author of our gospel, he did work in Persia and Ethiopia where he was stabbed to death. Bartholomew, he did work in India and Armenia and Ethiopia and South Arabia. We have reports of various beatings of him, but recorded to have been, he has been recorded to have been flayed alive and beheaded. James, the brother of John, he did work in Syria as well, where he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, he worked in Persia. And there's various stories that are told about him, but he probably died by crucifixion as well. Then we have a man named Matthias. He was the one that was, who replaced Judas at the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, this lucky guy served with Andrew in Syria, but he died by being burned alive at the stake. John is the only one that we have record of who died of natural causes. But in his lifetime, he experienced exile and he was marooned on an island. And tradition tells us that he was cast into a vat of boiling oil. Now, who does this for a lie? Also, the amount of these individuals who, experience, who say that they experienced Jesus alive, going through the torture that they did, you have to believe that somebody would have cracked if this was all for a myth. And we also need to be reminded that these guys didn't die merely for what they believed. They died because of what they believed they saw, that they were eyewitnesses to this. Well, another piece of evidence that Paul mentions here is the resurrection message itself. You see, the resurrection, the resurrection message was not something that was developed over a certain amount of time. Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically in verses 3 through 5, most scholars believe that he's repeating a, a, a teaching or a creed or a tradition that had existed from the very beginning uh, of when the church was birthed. Some scholars have dated this even all the way back to within two years of Jesus' first sighting after his death. In the book of Acts, there's a variety of, a to of topics that are addressed in the speeches and sermons that we read, which are the earliest uh, accounts that we have. And they, as they address a variety of topics, 100% of our speeches cover the topic of Jesus' resurrection. We also have a variety of 1st and 2nd century historians who record resurrection messages that they've heard from the Christian groups. See, the resurrection wasn't something that, I mean, 
hey, this would be a good idea if we develop this over time. It was from the very beginning, from the third day after Jesus' death on the cross. And then finally, we would submit evidences of the conversions of people like Jesus' brother James and the Apostle Paul himself. Paul's testimony is famous. He says in here he was once a murderer of Christians, but then he was turned chief herald of the gospel and wrote most of our New Testament. And Jesus' brother James, it's universally agreed upon that he was a staunch disbeliever. We read about this in John chapter 7, verse 5. But at some point after Jesus' resurrection, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he too died a horrible martyr's death. These five pieces of evidence here, Dr. Gary Habermas calls the minimum facts. Another historian, Giza Vermes, he calls these a few non-controversial facts, unassailable data, and neutral observations. But so what? So what? We just gave you a bunch of information. Big deal. What do we do with this? How do we draw meaning from all of this? Well, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us three operative phrases. The first one, he says this, I'm writing this to you as way of reminder. This is something that I preached to you while I was there and that you have already received this. And like I said before, chances are, most of you did not need convincing of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. But Paul preaches to believers as a way of reminder. It's Christianity's absolute essence, and he was taught this as a brand new Christian. It is what he received. It was the earliest of all Christian messages, and it was the very message that offended those who were in power, and that very message that these witnesses died for. But stripped of the meaning, the historical data still says that Jesus was crucified on the cross and that there were those who changed their lives because of it. It was a miracle that changed the course of humanity when they saw Jesus three days later. God, through the resurrection of Jesus, changed the entire meaning of human existence. It redefined the word life itself. But for those who have received it, this is your reminder again. This is your reminder. But for those of you who are wrestling with this, who are saying, man, this all sounds like a good idea, but is this real? Consider these pieces. Organize these pieces not by shaking them up in a box, but put them in the order that God has commanded us to do. And ask yourself, do you spend time and effort considering the resurrection of Christ? Well, second phrase Paul uses, he says, this was of first importance. He's talking about his priorities. The Christian life is prioritized around a risen Savior. Nothing is more depressing for a pastor than witnessing a member of his flock and not finding meaning in Christ's resurrection. What is your first importance? What is it that you've centered your life around? If someone were to witness your life, say from like a 3,000 foot view, and they couldn't hear exactly what you were saying, what would they say your life is centered on? What would they say is your first importance? See, the call is not merely to agree with the pieces of the resurrection. It is a call to realign your life around its meaning. And if Paul, the persecutor and murderer of many Christians, can be saved, so can you and I because of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, he says, and if you don't, if this isn't of your first importance, then you have believed in vain. And too often we are seeing Christian men and women falling not just to an addiction, not just because of sin, 
but we're seeing them fall because of disbelief. There's a richness and a depth that is desperately uh, missing, and so many of us are treating Jesus just merely as a self-help guru, only paying attention to him in our crisis. But the vanity of our belief is rearing its head all too commonly. And the seemingly inactivity of God in our lives does not come from the lack of God's reality or the lack of God's power. It comes from the lack of the intensity of our own, or our own belief. Too often it's skin deep rather than heart changing. And vanity does not have to be our story, though. We can recognize that God has put the pieces together intentionally, intelligently, so that the meaning of our lives is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm fond of hearing the story of a man named Paul Gordon. In the spring of 2008, Paul Gordon wrote a letter to all his employees at his company called Gordon Food Services. It's a big, sprawling company headquartered in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, Paul was a beloved employer, but he was dying of cancer. And in the letter, he thanked his people for all their good work and for the support they'd shown him and his family. But he concluded his letter with this paragraph. He said this, While the outlook of my time here on earth is not long, please rest assured that my outlook for eternity is secure. I do not say that because of anything that I have achieved from an earthly perspective. The only reason I can speak so confidently is because of God's grace. The Bible says that we all fall short of God's standards, and I am only made right with God because the penalty that belongs to me was paid by Jesus. That is what the celebration of these last Sundays have been all about. Jesus conquered sin and death in the grave when he rose from the dead, and it is my desire and prayer that each of you would come to experience that grace with the same assurance of where you will spend eternity. Paul Gordon went to be with Jesus on May 6, 2008. But I ask you, does, does your way of looking at the world, your philosophy of life, does it account for these incontrovertible facts? Does it account for putting these pieces in order, or are you merely just shaking the box? The death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection three days later, never to die again. And we have an opportunity this morning to be one of those people that now can be reminded. Are you ready to receive that? And if you have received that, is your life centered on this? Is this of your first importance? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And if you're ready to make that decision, we're going to have some folks at our decision points. Just make your way over there. And they'll be glad to lead you through that. But man, if you have realized that my life is not centered on these things, we would love to pray with you about that as well and start moving in that direction. Would you stand as we sing? If you have a decision to make, make your way to one of these uh, decisions.